This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, and I am joined from Fakatane by Mawera Karatai. Kia ora, Mawera. Kia ora, Sam. How's it going? It's going very well indeed. Not many sleeps till Christmas. No, not enough sleeps till Christmas, probably. <laughs> Are you all organised? No, no. I, I, I got Jack a new bike because he needed a new mountain bike, um, and I've told him that's to cover him for the next, you know, six Christmases until he leaves home. So, <laughs> so that's done. But aside from that, no, not a damn thing done. Although I actually went to a really, really lovely traditional Swedish Christmas dinner last night, and um, so I feel like you know that was my Christmas thing. So I'm pretty happy about that. Yeah. And who are we introducing today? Today, um, we're actually introducing one of the hosts of aforementioned dinner, um, Mr Guy Hobson, a writer and book collector and an incredibly interesting man who I met the first time last night. Guy, it's a joy to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Kia ora. Thank you for having me. Kia ora, Guy. Where are you, Guy? Um, I'm on the slopes um, of the Kaimai Ranges, close to Katikati, which is just to the north of Tauranga. Cool. How is Christmas week there? Oh, Christmas week uh, is is beginning with quite a big clear up this morning. Um, but um, having had one big party, we can now we can now take it easy um, and and just have a little family gathering. And um, very much looking forward to having some of our family um, let out of Auckland uh, and seeing them for the first time since February. Uh, in a couple of cases so we have two daughters who are up in Auckland and um, should they should both be here by Christmas that'll be exciting my sister arrives from Auckland just after Christmas I think that there is a mass exodus out of Auckland I think so I'm sure they're all dying to get out um, I certainly couldn't couldn't wait to get out when I left <laughs> <laughs> so we're asking people about how their bubble life's life was and of course now that has gotten complicated because there's several bubble lives and a traffic light but we'll go back to the site how was your first bubble life last year i i actually rather enjoyed it um i've uh, my my bubble consisted of um doing a master's degree in professional writing at the university of waikato so having started that degree course in the february um by the end of march i was was doing that degree um on zoom Online and really leaving my desk and that that meant doing rather a lot of writing which was tremendous fun um so i was spending an incredible amount of time in my head um which which is kind of perfect in lockdown um it's it's the ideal anecdote to uh, to not leaving the house did you but you would have been missing out on the sort of the the creative experiences you, you couldn't put yourself it, in different places and think to write about i i think the um 
I mean, it was it, it was difficult to be part of a writer's group. So there were six of us, six of us on the master's course. Um, but I guess, um, you know, the online experience does give you the chance to to kind of be together uh, and to, to share those things, to see each other and to to talk fairly freely. Um, so we still managed to read our weekly essays and exercises. Um, we had some books to read as well, um, which all turned out to be very bleak books, things like The Road and As I Lay Dying and things like that. So, so there was a sort of element of bleakness coming through um, in, our, in our set reading uh, for one of the papers that we did. But um, I, it was actually possible to collaborate quite well uh, and to share ideas. And I think the, the writing experience especially for myself, was very much writing um, a piece about remembering. So it has is, it is morphed itself into a novel, uh, which is called All I Remember is Forgetting. So that sense, of, that sense of remembering your past and your past experiences and combining it with pieces of art and artworks, um, you know, that, that's, quite a, that's quite an easy one to do in your head and to spend, to spend that time remembering. So... Um, I think for that reason, the lockdown um, passed quite easily. And I, um, as Marwan knows from yesterday, I do have rather a lot of book. Um, so it's very easy to spend um, an awful lot of time uh, enjoying that collection of books as well. I think I, I'm ashamed to say there could be nearly 5,000 in this. Oh. <laughs> do you think future collectors of books will recognise books written in the pandemic? Is there, is there going to be a, a pandemic style? The view from, I th- my, I think the view from my window, yeah. the view inside my head. I, I think that's already emerging. Um, there is a, a quite a well. I was going to say quite a famous. Is he quite famous? No, probably not. But there's a there's a writer in the UK, Jack Owensky, um, and he's he's written a book called The Hundred Days, which is his his sort of thought piece about what um, what's going on in his head um, and and what his experiences are, and he's he's t- t- turned it into a sort of an alphabet type exercise of of you know taking a letter and, and every day writing something about something that pops into his head around a particular letter and working his way through the alphabet and also his, his memories. And I think, you know, there's quite a lot of, there's quite a lot of pandemic writing out there already. Um, although I did, um, when I popped into the local um, independent bookstore here in Tauranga, um, I did talk to the, the owner there and she said, please, no more, no more pandemic books. And this was a few months ago. She said, I'm just not <laughs> selling them. Nobody, nobody wants to read about being in this situation that they're in. They're, they're, they're too busy kind of experiencing it and, and, and not enjoying it. So it, it, it doesn't make for literature that sells very well, according to her. You said that you were reading bleak books, but is the, is the writing bleak or is the, the writing of those pandemic books positive? I think it's I think it's quite positive. Um, certainly, some of the things I've I've seen and, and and read so far, it has been it has been quite positive because people people are looking for the the happy happy memories and the and the fun things uh, to come out. So um, yeah, I, I'm I I don't quite share the same view as the uh, lady in the bookstore, but um, I think it's I think it's quite good to explore and go back in your in your memories and think you know what what was that you know what 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 was going on in my past what can I cling to and remember. Let's squeeze in the first of your music tracks. Let's have Dire Straits, Romeo and Juliet. Why this one? Oh, this is this is something that goes right back to my my teenage years. Um, always loved the song. Always sing it, sing along very badly. I won't do that now, but um, I, I, it's like all the all the lyrics are burned in my head. Um, when I was sixteen at school, um, 
probably nearly about to you know get my first girlfriend um we studied romeo and juliet uh, in english at school uh, and i remember being very taken by you know a pop song that linked back to literature so um and i like the sort of twist on it uh, and how it transferred itself into a modern song and something from the from the 1600s or the 15 late 1500s so that uh, that made a big impression on me, and I, and I've just always loved the song. And and Mark Knopfler guitar playing, I just think is is extraordinary. I love struck Romeo, sing the streets of serenade. Laying everybody low With a love song that he made Find the streetlight Steps out of the shade Says something like You and me, babe How about it? Juliet says Hey, it's Romeo He nearly gave me a heart attack He's underneath the window She's singing Leila, my boyfriend's back Shouldn't come around here singing up with people like that. Anyway, what you gonna do about it? Juliet, the dice was loaded from the start, and I bet any you exploded into my heart, and I forget, I forget the movie song. When you're gonna realize it was just a Time was wrong, Juliet. Come up on different streets, they both were streets of shame. Both dirty, both mean. Yes, and the dream was just the same. And I dreamed your dream for you, and now your dream is real. Can you look at me as if I was just another one of your deals? When you can fall for chains of silver, you can fall for chains of gold. You can fall for pretty strangers, and the promises they hold. You promised me everything. You promised me thick and thin, yeah. Now you just say, oh, Romeo, yeah. You know, I used to have a scene with him. Through the bars of a rhyme 
A really awesome conversation last night. I thoroughly enjoyed it. But one of the things that um, really sparked my imagination was your story about your archaeological dig when you were about 18. Will you share that with us? Of course I will. It's um, it's one of those uh, things that, that happens in the corporate world. You get you get asked as those icebreaker exercises, you know, tell us, tell us something about yourself that, that nobody would guess or nobody would know. And um, I often used to use the story that when I was when I was 18, I dug up or I was part of a team that dug up 264 Viking warriors. And, and people obviously probably wouldn't have guessed that about me, especially <laughs> sitting in some financial institution, you know, talking, talking rubbish. Um, so I used to love using that story. But it, but over the years, something has changed. Um, the guy that we were digging up uh, in this in this vicar's garden somewhere in the in the English Midlands, um, it turned out to be a fellow called Ivar the Boneless. Um, and so the the TV series The Vikings obviously suddenly brought this rather malicious character to life. Um, suddenly gave him a, a screen presence, and and everybody now knows who Ivar the Boneless was. Whereas when we were digging it up, you know, there were there was a handful of Anglo-Saxon scholars um, who who had heard of him from the from the um, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles of 874, um, and nobody else in the world even even knew who he was. So um, it was a fascinating experience. There's a it's a little um, I was going to say town. It's it's kind of midway between a, a small town and a, a large village. 
in southern Derbyshire. Repton is, um, well, it has the most beautiful old church, um, the Church of St. Wiston. And although it's a, it's a sort of a 14th, 15th century church on the top, underneath the church um, is a crypt which was built in the 700s, and it was the burial place of the kings of Mercia. So you, you descend from a, a beautiful medieval church into, into you know, almost prehistory, if you like. Uh, it's a wonderful transformation to go down this narrow stairway into this really low crypt with these beautiful carved columns. And because Repton, obviously, then was a major place, because the kings of Mercia were buried there, um, that's where the Vikings went. They, they went there in 874. And um, the, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says they overwintered there. So they spent the winter there. They came in, in their ships down the River Trent and um, got out there and built themselves a fortification, which included that, that church. It was built into a rampart uh, and they, they fortified the site. And they obviously fought a battle there because um, in the middle of the vicar's garden, which is uh, next to the church, there was a little bit of a mound. And when we dug it up, we found all these warriors buried around the central grave. And I suppose the, the thing, and this is what I was uh, telling Marwira last night, was, was that um, lying in a, in a trench, the bones were nearly two feet high, all stacked on one another. They'd, they'd been buried to surround, the, um, to surround um, Ivar. And um, so it, it was an extraordinary experience to come across such a sort of pile of bones put together like that. And one of the things that I that I loved about this as an archaeological experience was that you, you you find something and then you're constantly reinterpreting it. What what does it mean? What what who are these people and what does all this mean? So when we dug these people up, first of all, they were literally just a pile of bones and we placed them all over the vicar's garden on big plastic sheets and on egg boxes and things like this. And we started piecing things together and counting all the bones, but all the little bones were missing. All the fingers and toes had gone and all this sort of thing. So, you know, they'd obviously been gathered up from, from, from some. the first three was that these were the, the local people, the local population who might have been massacred when the Vikings arrived and, and piled up together in a, in a big pit. And then obviously, then you start applying science. So then you apply DNA testing and this sort of thing. Uh, and then you start looking at their teeth. And then you can <clears throat> quite quickly tell that they all pretty much all came from Scandinavia, that they were all born overseas. Um, you can tell uh, from from teeth uh, where people have, where the calcium in the, in the sorry, the, not the calcium, the uh, um, from the teeth, you tell where people were, were, were born and they were spent their early years from the water that they were drinking and, and what the effect that's had on the teeth. So we pretty quickly knew that they were all Vikings. Um, and then uh, then you start this sort of, you know, uh, reinterpretation. And they started carbon dating these people and thought, um, you know, what uh, what date did they did they die? And at that point, the story changed and swapped rather because the carbon dating, some of them were 300 years older than the time we, we thought they'd been buried. And obviously that that led to a different hypothesis, which was that they'd come as um bones the bones of ancestors had come on the ships with the vikings and this was this was revolutionary and and you can find it in one or two one or two history books about the vikings that that this this piece of information got in there and talked about them them bringing their ancestors with them um and that was in that was in 1982 about two or three years ago the whole story was was recast um as science has moved us forward 
they've redated all of those bones and they are all now contemporary with the year we thought they were, 874. But it turns out that if you eat an awful lot of fish, that will affect um, the carbon dating of your bones because fish have a, have a completely different... Um, they, the, the carbon in the in the fish that that I, I can't it's hard to explain how all this works the uh, the way that that changes your profile when when you when your bones are dated can can alter it by hundreds of years because fish are lower down in the ocean and they have a different carbon makeup and all sorts of things like this I can't explain all of the science but the whole story changed again um, so they were all they were all contemporary with when we thought they should have been uh, and they weren't carrying the bones of ancestors around but but it was an extraordinary experience um, being close to all these Viking warriors. I, I never thought it would become a become a movie and a and a film. And um, there were all sorts of things we found that were interesting and and about about Ivar and some of his followers. And I guess these these were all his men. These were all his his warrior band. And given that I was born in Derby, probably my ancestors. Probably, very probably. <laughs> I was born a little way up the road in Sheffield, so I was um, not too far away. In fact, um, my mum's from Sawley, which is just down the Trent from there. There we go. But your writing's not about that time, because you, you said your latest book is about what I remember, and you don't remember being a Viking. No. <laughs> What's your focus? The The theory of the book is, um, it's written in the first person. It's it's about a fellow called Roger Phillips, uh, who is a, a, a thinly veiled caricature of myself. And it's about Roger's um, rather unsuccessful relationships, of which there are three. Um, but it's told using the lens of great works of art. Um, so there are about 60 different paintings and sculptures from around the world. Um, I have always been a huge art fan. I'm that person that goes and stands in front of paintings and next to sculptures and looks at them for a while and, and just loves them, just, just enjoys that moment. Um, and... The inspiration for the book was um, a rather sad uh, episode in a former relationship when my front, well, this, is, this has been happening since I was a, a schoolboy. I would buy postcards. Every gallery and museum I went to, I, I couldn't afford a book or anything, but I could afford a postcard. So I bought postcards of all my favorite works of art. And then as I started to travel around the world and I went you know, to America and I went to New York and I went to Rome and I went to Prague and I went to all sorts of cities around the world, I would keep on buying those postcards. So I had a box of six little drawers. Each drawer had about 100 postcards in it. So there were 600 art postcards. And um, my ex-wife took them to the dump and threw them all away. Um, and I, I used that experience as, as the motivation for, for writing the book because, because my memories had been lost. And each little postcard, I probably couldn't, I couldn't remember every single work of art that was there, but they all had a story wrapped around them. They all had a place, a city, a gallery, somebody I might have been with. Um, they all had a story wrapped around. Um, so I used that as the inspiration. But then I started to look at some of those works of art and those artists, and I found amazing stories about their own lives and their own relationships uh, and events and was able to just weave parts of my own story around parts of theirs and, and just um, mirror the two together. And just had a tremendous amount of fun researching some of that and um, and discovering things I, I, I'd never known. I just loved the pieces of art. You end up and, you're um, you know, it, when you're writing, sorry. do you have bits of paper everywhere? Um I, I usually just have pictures, I, I, you know, the pictures that I can look at and um, and then I start scribbling and, and, and writing things and uh, and developing the, the ideas. 
Is it developing, developing the ideas? Does does it arrive fully formed, or do you have an idea this is going to be interesting? Let's see where it goes. It, it doesn't usually arrive fully formed. Um, it, it kind of develops um, and and begins to to mirror. There's um there's a beautiful Victorian painting called the Railway Station uh, by a fellow called Firth, and um, it's it's got sixty or seventy people standing on a London railway station, all in Victorian dress. Um, some of the people have got interesting stories. You know, there's there's a criminal being arrested by two famous detectives, and there's there's his own family and his own children and wife are in there as well. Um, but that that railway journey was was one that I used to take um, from London to Sheffield to go and see my girlfriend in Sheffield. So so that story of, of all those people on that railway station um, had a resonance for that for that railway journey that I used to to take quite often to uh, to go up to the north. Um, but it also the, the the original painting has a huge story. Um, and I sat next to it um, when I took my finals at university. So in the uh, the university gallery, they had a gallery um, full of Victorian painting um, at Royal Holloway College um, to the west of London. And you took your final exams in that room. So as I was sitting there scribbling about Anglo-Saxons and Romans and Greeks and things like this, um, there was this painting of the railway station right next to me with a few you know, turners and constables and things like that, right, right, you know, literally close enough to reach out and touch. Um, so it was lovely to to kind of be able to remember all of those things about about not just the journey, but also the um, the experience of sitting next to that thinking, oh, I should be writing about the Greeks, but I'm looking at um, the painting of the railway station. If only um, you'd known which it, if only you'd known which painting you're going to be sitting beside, you could have used some sort of memory trick associating images with that paint the pa- painting with the facts. Yeah, I think you you, you probably could. Um, the um, when I when I looked into the the the, the painting itself, I, I discovered that the Victorians had a completely different way of of viewing art. You you paid. You paid a shilling to go and see this one painting in an exhibition, all surrounded by velvet drapery in a special little gallery somewhere near Covent Garden, where it was first uh, first put there. And 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 literally, people paid and quite a, quite a large amount of money in in the late Victorian times to see this painting and just look at that, nothing else. And and somebody then wrote a little book to explain what was happening in the painting. And I was fascinated by this. Somebody had somebody had interpreted it so that people could enjoy it better. And so there was a little book. You could buy a, a paperback version or a bound version, depending on how rich you were. And it told you the story about all these characters that were on were in the painting. And I thought, how how incredible. And then and then the painting went on tour around the country. It was exhibited in different cities. It even went to the USA. It was exhibited there just to look at and I thought an extraordinary different um take on on how to view art so when I found things out like that I was able to sort of include that in in my um my my stories because you know I was talking about looking at art but I was able to use you know how did people look at art in past times it, it was quite it was quite different to how we how we view it um and so you know from from that Yes, I, I ended up with with the stories of, of myself and my and my girlfriend um, up in up in Sheffield, and and that was that was quite unusual too because Sheffield was where I was born, but I'd left it a long time before uh, and moved south from there uh, to live in the Midlands, and and then eventually go down to London. So the um, there are lots of stories that I was able to sort of recall of, of about those days and and mix them into this story of the railway station. 
our work was just chaos last week because for some reason we, we've got a, like a distributed workforce but everybody was in last week it was just bedlam um and i referred to it <laughs> as it's like a railway station and people people looked at me baffled because i of course in a railway station in new zealand is this place where there used to be people used to be busy <laughs> but they didn't have the saying it's like a railway station <laughs> it was it was very weird <laughs> let's squeeze in tahu Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokunui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Oh, Hope you're all having a stay, beautiful superstars and beloved universe. I really hope wherever you are, whatever's happening around you, this journey that we're all on together, very reward, very sustained and illuminating for you in each day. Who you are, the triumph of nature's heart perfect, unique and making better. Thank you. Now I know for us all that the last nearly two years now have been a time of such intense change and transformation. And for us all, this process has been painful. For us all, this process has been at times unbelievably stressful. And for all of us, we've had to experience new ways of doing, being, seeing, feeling that we had not imagined we would in our life, I'm sure. And of course, all life undergoes stressful transformations. It's metamorphosis in essence that we must all grow and transform and change as a result of being alive and today particularly I've been feeling so hopeful and grateful for my present life and for my future and of course for my past and I spent today in the beautiful Otago Museum all dressed up as a mermaid with a large mermaid piece on featured two sea stars and two mermaids and multiple seaweed inspired items and just so many beautiful children came to see me and we had a wonderful time together making up stories and I did this all day so I was there from 9 30 until now and sitting on a lovely chair that the back was scalloped like a beautiful seashell and I had my feet up, it was very good because as we all know I fell down a hole in my garage in the carport in between two floorboards and had to pull myself out and hurt my leg a lot whilst carrying a big heavy box of bird feeders last week and so my whole leg has gone through this very painful metamorphosis from being completely black and one giant hematoma leg to purple and yellow and all these different colours that it is now but it's still very sore and it's still best if I can elevate it like all life experience and keep it elevated like all life experience so I had the best time today because it's the first day since I injured my leg where I have been able to just sit and have my leg elevated all day and I had the best time obviously with all these beautiful children because I didn't have to do anything I could just sit there and we would make up the most amazing stories together but it really just came from them and I had my beautiful lion, my sea lion, and I had my beautiful baby boat, golden boat, and these were my props, and it was just brilliant the whole time. And of course it got me reflecting on how, as a species, this is something that we do, and we've always done. We love stories, and in the midst of so much change and turmoil, to be able to come together and find, of course, that our creative essence is still there, 
that our sense of hope and awe and wonder and magic is still there in the midst of having to change so much about how we go about our daily lives we can still come together and really enjoy magical events like this and this is for the Otago Museum's opening of their Sea Monsters exhibition and so of course this is again that power that we have of going out into the unknown to depths that we can't fathom and we can do our best to remain brave and create stories that are going to help us when we feel afraid when we're out together on our walker, out together floating on the surface, we know that the depths that are there are ones we can navigate. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks, Kakite. You're listening to Blowing Bubbles. We're talking with Guy Hobson. When you're talking before, Guy, about um, your postcards um, being taken to the dump, like I just can't fathom that kind of horrendous destruction. And how do you come back from from such a loss like that, a lifetime of collecting something and someone basically stealing that? How do you get? How do you come back from that? Well, I, I think one of the things I realised quite early on was that I would never have that collection again. It, it's not something you can replace because because it was a lifetime. Um, it was it was thirty years, more than thirty years of collecting, um, and I don't have another thirty years to travel around all those places. And and I certainly don't have. I mean, I used to travel around the world on business trip and, and business trip I would sneak into a museum um, and I would um, go and go and look at pieces of art and buy my postcards um, and I knew I would never get all that back um, but you can you can get a snapshot of it um, and and so one of the things that I did um, was I brought my I brought my mum to live with me here in New Zealand in, in 2017 I went over to the UK I we, we sold a house packed everything up into a container and I shipped her over here um, to live in my garage <laughs> which we did convert but um, and um, I had a day with uh, a day spare um, waiting for a, a late night flight in Heathrow so um, I left mum in a hotel and early in the morning, I jumped on a tube from Heathrow and went into the middle of London and ran from every gallery and museum uh, from one to another and every postcard shop. And I bought nearly 250 postcards <laughs> on that day. Um, at the I don't know, the, the Museum of London, the, the British Museum, the National Gallery, the National Portrait Gallery, the Tate Gallery. And, just you know, I just literally ran and... <laughs> I, I couldn't not go and look at a few of those paintings. Though. I, I kind of got slower and slower as the day went on because there were so many old friends in those in those museums and galleries that I had to just go and stand in front of a few of them and just just remember those experiences. Um, there's um, yeah, they're, they're, you know, they're, I used to I used to spend a lot of time in the British Museum. Um, I used to have Latin lessons with my tutor in the British Museum, which was a weird a weird kind of experience because I hated Latin, but I loved the museum. Um, but uh, you know, there were there were old bits of archaeology and things that I that I could go and see. Um, but yeah, so I've I've kind of recreated uh, a little bit of my lost collection. Um, I'm not I'm not bitter about it anymore. There's no point being bitter. That's one of the things you kind of learn as you go through life. Is is there's no point sitting around regretting everything. You just have to uh, you just have to move forwards. And Marwira um, will know. Um, my lovely wife, Orsa, is from Sweden. And um, so when I went to visit her parents in Sweden, I got a chance to go to museums in uh, Stockholm. And we went off also to Oslo 
Uh, so I've been to new museums now, new galleries, and, and got new postcards from those. So I'm building a different collection this time. Won't be as big as 600, but but it's you know it's growing, and I pick them up wherever I go. I haven't been anywhere for a while, but um, yeah, now I've got new pieces of new pieces of art, and new new stories from new paintings. So um, it's it's just a growth. You you know you grow through the you grow through the loss and and find something different. So I don't look on it too badly. It's given me a good story. <laughs> Every time I go to London, I have to go to the British Museum to check on their chess pieces, make sure they're still having. Oh, a good the time. Lewis. Mm. Yeah, the Lewis chessmen. I've, I've got. I've, that was something else I got in the shop. I bought three of those um, imitation Lewis chessmen. They're down on a bookshelf downstairs. <laughs> Let's take the second of your music choices. Let's have Annie Lennox, "The Gift." Why this one? Um. This this relates to a particular evening um, in in uh, towards the end of my first my first marriage um, when I suddenly was seized by the need to run away. Um, I I got in the car and I drove from West London and I drove to the east coast of England uh, to a place called Southwold. I was I was convinced that I had to go to Southwold. I don't really know why. I'd never been there before in my life. Um, but I got in the car and I drove. Um, I can't remember. Is it the A12? I think it is. The, I drove along the A12 um, through the night and I kept playing this song and I became an expert on rewinding the track and to hit the beginning. And I don't know how many times I, I listened to this particular song over and over again on that on that trip. But it but it, it kind of it's always stuck with me. And I um, I use that as a as a as a sort of a little writing prompt uh, a couple of years back to to tell a story about you know how how the the words and the lyrics can can mean so much but it was it's a sad song uh, and it was a an ending of a relationship type song but um, it very vividly brings back a drive through the nighttime on a wild rather windy east coast night um, and and gives me a takes me back to that drive straight away as soon as I hear the opening bars. Can't go on living in the same sick joke 
I've seen lots of changes in society over the the past couple of years of the the pandemic time. What do you think is going to stick? And perhaps more importantly, what do you hope will stick? I hope um, I hope some of the kindness will stick. Obviously, in in New Zealand, we we've, we've been told to be kind, um, which is quite an unusual thing. You know, it's not something I've, I've really heard told to people to do before. Um, and I like that. I think it's I think it's been I think it's been good. Um, it's been an incredibly difficult time and it's been it's been very difficult to look at the rest of the world um i am a firm believer that we cannot appreciate how lucky we have been to be here in new zealand if you if you look at the numbers of people who have died in countries the same size you see you know five four thousand in in ireland you see five thousand in in some places and you see up to fifteen thousand people have died of covid in some countries that have the same population as we do and then you look at our 40 something 
and you think wow we we it, it is incredible to think how how lucky we have been so i hope that we begin to appreciate that more um i hope that you know that that kindness which has kept so many of us alive um does continue and we can we can capitalize on that and make the most of it and and you know look after each other but i think it has changed you know a lot of things have changed the way we work um has has changed completely so one of the things that um that I do in a in a professional life when I'm when I'm not being a writer is to write things called business continuity plans um, and you know how does how does a business survive uh, in a in a in a different environment uh, and trying to plan out how to do things. So I used to write plans where we we had a theory that that you would you wouldn't go to work you know the building might burn down so how would you operate um, and suddenly COVID solved that for us that we all stay at home and work. Um, and we can connect in ways that we we never used to a few years ago. Um, so it has changed um, the way things work quite dramatically. Um, and it, and I suppose it's made people aware that that they don't necessarily have to commute a long way to work or, or get in the car and drive. They can they can do it from their their desk or their living room or even their bed. You know, it's it is possible. Uh, so it's changed a lot, and I hope that we can continue to change for the better that we can look at things in a different way so so you know now it's possible to get a job and not be there not be in an office uh, and, and operate that way and i think that's quite a good thing for some people it gives them a different flexibility so i hope it's uh, it it continues to be a positive thing as well as a a sad thing in in other places most of those business continuity plans and similar things work on the presumption that it's going to get back to business as usual sometime. Do you think we're going to get back to a business as usual or is it a, a new normal? Is it a regeneration? What are you seeing we've perhaps not yet arrived at? I think I think it's it's possible that a lot of people will say, oh, we, we do need to get back to the, the, the normal, the, the, the office-based role. Um, but I think people have found that it that it does work, and I think I hope that's strong enough to 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 change things uh, for good. I think some of the some of the stories that have emerged around the world, you know, the the way that people are not getting in the car and commuting, they're not using airplanes in the same way. Some of that is really good for the planet. It means that we're 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 burning less fuel, and that that has got to be a good thing for all of us. And I think if we can cling on to that and remember that and say, hey, I'm doing some good here. Uh, by sticking to this this way of working, um, I, I really hope that we can take a positive from that. I think I remember. I think there was dolphins that they'd seen swimming around Venice, um, and people were seeing wildlife returning to the city because it wasn't full of tourist boats and, and big big uh, cruise liners and things like that. So you know, there was a very positive outcome for the fact that people were not travelling, uh, and and that's you know that's a good thing for the world. Uh, we we need to do more. How can we make sure that that kind of thing sticks? I, mean, I remember after the first lockdown, we were walking down the street thinking, middle of the road actually, thinking this is all very nice, but tomorrow be, we won't be able to do this because there'll be cars here. And sure enough, we rushed back to being busy. What could we do to make those sorts of those sorts of things, whether it be the rushing about, whether it be the, the fact we've had that time to, to rest and to write and those sorts of things, could we do anything to, to make those sorts of things stick? I think that comes down to every single business, every every single organisation and institution. Um, everybody has the opportunity now to say we can do things differently, and it, it's up to them to to actually you know make good on that promise. Yeah, let's do things differently. Um, and if we can, 
if we can really push for that, you know, as individuals, we can say, look, we, we want to do this. It's a better way of doing things. Um, I think there could be a groundswell of opinion to, to say, yeah, no, this is this is the time. You know, we already know with, with all the climate change that's happening uh, and all of those uh, potential disasters that could come our way that that action has to be taken well this is the call for action you know we we it's down to each one of us to tell our you know our employers or whoever it may be you know we want to do this differently because this is better for the planet and, and it's time we did it it's time we made that change I have some questions to end the show with and not very much time so we shall have to rattle through them what is the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years I think it was pressing pressing the proverbial button on the computer that said send send this novel <laughs> through. You know, it's gone. You know that, that that enormous sense of weight falling off your shoulders as as it as it wings its way through the ether. Um, and it was about the third or fourth of June, I think, I submitted it, and um, I'm still waiting for my results. But um, I um, yeah, it's a good, it's a nice feeling to think right. That's that's accomplished. Done. Tick. <laughs> Next story. <laughs> So we are writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. It's our team of people doing good work. So you are in that team. What's your superpower? What's got you into the mansion? Um, invisibility. Yeah, there's no greater gift to a writer uh, than to be invisible and to earwig on people's conversations, um, just just to listen in and hear all those things. You would get so much inspiration from that, so many great stories. So, yeah, superpower, definitely invisibility. Do you consider yourself to be an activist? Yes. Um, if 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 you want to talk to me about um, sea level rise and climate change, I will I will talk to you till the cows come home about <laughs> you know, what what a big difference that's going to make to your lives, especially all the people that live on the uh, on the edge of the beach. Beyond the not rushing about and and actually the fact that we did reduce our consumption for a bit, is there anything that we can take from the pandemic response for how we might respond better to things like climate change, biodiversity, social justice, those bigger sorts of things? I think... um... Putting them on the agenda is obviously the crucial point. You know, getting getting them talked about and noticed. So um, that that's where the that's where the other writer's superpower comes in. You know, spreading words around and, and telling stories is the way we have to take this forward. People have to understand, and we have to we have to make it compelling and interesting and worthwhile. So you know, that's I hope people are prepared to listen to those stories now. They need to they need to hear that news. So. Uh, you know, we've become quite attuned to news. You know, we spend a lot of time listening to the, you know, the one pm broadcasts or the, you know, the important things that come along every day. So maybe we can get some of those stories out and and um, think about some of those now. So what motivates you? What gets you out of bed every day? Coffee, usually. Um, I, 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 yeah, I think if if I look back on my life, I probably at a very early stage stage said I want to be a writer. I've always wanted to be a writer. Um, and I've taken me nearly 50 years to, to kind of get around to doing it properly. Um, but it is one of those ambitions that you have. So, yeah, having a, having an ambition to um, to create really good stories and really um, put ideas across well and, and create something different that, that people can enjoy in the, in the way that I've enjoyed other people's books. Um, that, that motivates me to find that that really good story somewhere out there, as there are so many. So what challenge or opportunity are you looking forward to? In the next year or two? Well, um, I've got a book now. Um, I have to convince somebody to, to turn it into a, 
a mashed up tree uh, on pieces of paper and, and print it somewhere and sell it somewhere. Um, I'm waiting for that for that um, that master's manuscript to come back with some um, some commentary. And then on the basis of that, I will revise and refine it a little bit. And then I will take it out into the publishing world and try and find somebody who would like to uh, who would like to put it on paper for me and sell it. So, um, yeah, that's a really big challenge for me uh, trying to trying to get that out there. Oh, well, good best of luck with that. I certainly like the premise. Um, thing. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? I think um, my advice would be there are an awful lot of good books out there. Um, go and find them. Go and go and you know go into the library and find them. Go into your local bookstore and find them, and um, dig out a good story because it's amazing where it can take you. Thank you for that, Moira. I really love language and words, Guy, and I, I love that they, they connect us and they inspire us. And when we read stories about other people um, and, you know, the experience that they have, then and they're the same as our own, we don't feel so alone. And so here you are embarking on this mission to um, to, to be a, a full-time writer and, and and writing stuff that people will be able to relate to. And uh, I just think that's such a beautiful thing to commit your life to. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for being part of a solution rather than, um, I don't know, it just seems a bit dry to be the guy who who solves all the problems by saying, don't build a house here. Um, Nobody wants to listen to that, but everybody wants to read a good book. So (laughs) I think it's a really good, good way to change the world and a beautiful place for your activism. So thank you for making that commitment. Uh, it's been been lots of fun. It's been great talking to you as well. Thank you very much for joining us. On the first day of solstice, my coven gave to me a raven in a birch tree. On the second day of solstice, my coven gave to me two pentacles and a raven in a birch tree. On the third day of solstice, my coven gave to me Three money spells, two pentacles, and a raven in a birch tree. On the fourth day of solstice, my coven gave to me four elements. Three money spells, two pentacles, and a raven in a birch tree. On the fifth day of solstice, my coven gave to me And a raven in a birch tree On the sixth day of solstice My coven gave to me Six golden statues Five oaken stars Four elements Three money spells Two pentacles And a raven in a birch tree On the seventh day of solstice My coven gave to me Seven books of shadows Six goddess statues Five oaken stars Four elements Three money spells Two pentacles And a raven in a birch tree On the eighth day of solstice My coven gave to me Eight tantric lessons Seven books of shadows Six goddess statues Five oaken stars Four elements Three money spells Two pentacles And a raven in a birch tree the ninth day of solstice, my coven gave to me nine shamans drumming, eight entric lessons, seven books of shadows, six goddess statues, five oaken stars, four elements, three money spells.
You've been listening to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world, brought to you by the Sustainable Lens Team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We are broadcast on Otago Access Radio every weekday afternoon at three and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We had a contribution today from Tahu McKenzie. This is Katrina Sky, the 13 days of solstice. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, with Mawira Karatai in Fakatane, and in Katikati, we've been joined by Guy Hobson. That was Blowing Bubbles. We hope you enjoyed the show. On the 12th day of solstice, my coven gave to me 12 quadrum pot, 11 herbs and drying, 10 flowers blooming, 9 shamans strumming, 8 entric lessons, 7 books of shadows, 6 goddess statues, 5 vocal stars, 4 elements, 3 money spells, 2 pentacles, and a raven in a birch tree. On the 13th day of solstice, my coven gave to me. Eleven herbs are drying, ten flowers blooming, nine shamans drumming, eight tantric lessons, seven books of shadows, six goddess statues, five oaken stars, four elements, three money spells, two pentacles, and a raven in a birch This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.